Evening Hope. Open up to the book of Ephesians, will you, as we're going to continue on our series. We're still, we're still in the book, uh, sorry, in the, in the first chapter of Ephesians here, but, but we're picking up some pace. We spent the last two weeks, in case you weren't here, uh, and a recap if you were, we spent the last two weeks going over verse 3 to 14 twice in order to, the first time we sort of broke down the, the Trinitarian aspects to how God has revealed himself as our saviour in the scriptures. So, so that we see that our salvation has been planned by the Father from eternity past. It is achieved by the Son in his life, death and resurrection of his earthly ministry. And it is applied to us by the Holy Spirit who seals it to our heart through faith when we believe the preached gospel. And so we were looking at the Trinitarian aspect to how salvation plays out, but we were also looking at last week, we particularly honed in on the, uh, the, the element of salvation, which is by our union with Christ. That is really the central point, the, the, the source and head of all of the salvation that we have. It ultimately flows from this, from this, uh, this, 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 so, this spring of water bubbling up out of eternity, which is our union with Christ. We were one with Christ, in our election. We were, we were one with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection because he was our representative. And we are one with Christ when we believe and in him we receive our, in the blessing of our union with Christ, we receive all of the benefits of justification and adoption and sanctification and a future glorification. And it was, it really was so much. And, and, and I've, I've said, uh, uh, I was told the last couple of weeks, like, I mean, I did lose count about, out of how many people, and I didn't take it personally, but the amount of people who did come and tell me and say, whoa, way too much. Did you consider maybe doing three or four sermons there, uh, or maybe four or five, and just give us some time to digest the goods? I mean, that was an amazing, a glorious, mind-expanding, mind-blowing, heart-wrenching, gut-turning portion of scripture, but I needed more time, and unbiblical. Okay, I'm, I'm more biblical than you, and uh, that's just my, that's my go-to uh, response. So look, Paul knows that everything he just said in chapter 1 is going to be mind-blowing, because then he spends the next uh, few verses, which we're going to be in tonight, praying that we would be able to have our brains expanded to understand it. Okay, so he, it's good news for us if after the last couple of weeks you've gone, I've never heard these words before. This is supposed to be the bread and butter of the gospel, you're saying. This is, I mean, it's right in the book. It's been here since the early days. I mean, the theologians have always taught this. Why haven't I heard this before? This is, there's so much new stuff here. And the answer is, yeah, of course. But, but Paul gets it. He's gracious to us. And it's sort of good news that we hear him at, at the end of us hearing all of that and going, I just need some time to process it. He goes, okay, I'll be slow, we'll put pause, and we'll pray for the ability to process it. That's what tonight is. So look at verse 15. As we get one of these, these all-important portions of Scripture, is, is the prayers of the apostles, or, or the prayers of Jesus Christ. It's, it's just, I've said it before, the prayers that are written down in Scripture are the cheat sheet for the Christian life. Because if you want to know what does the apostle want me to do, just go and look at what he well, look at what he says, because he doesn't hold back. But also, look at what he's praying for when he goes to the Father, or when Jesus goes to the Father in his earthly ministry and says, here's what I'm praying for. We can just, we can just look at what he's saying and go, all right, those things, that's what I'm doing. That's what I need to aim for. That's what he's praying for. That's what he wants. That should be what we're seeking. And so tonight, we see Paul's prayer towards the Father, both in thanks and in uh, uh, petition for the people, and we're going to apply it to our lives. Hear now the word of the only true living God. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the uh, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading of his own word to us in our midst for our blessing this evening. Verse uh, 15 starts out, for this reason. We're going to see him give thanks, but then we're going to see him go into this threefold prayer. He's going to pray for our knowledge, he's going to pray for our hope, and he's going to pray for our power. So look at verse 15. First of all, he just gives thanks. He, He says, for this reason, and any studious Bible reader needs to then ask, well, what reason? Because you can't just start a sentence in the middle like that. Don't, gentlemen, don't you hate it when your wife just starts a conversation by saying, are you even listening to me? What a weird way to start a conversation, you know what I mean? Uh, and so likewise, we don't do that with the Apostle Paul. When he says, for this reason, we go, well, what reason? What reason are you talking about? And of course, he's just given us the reason in verse 3 to 14. He's just said, it is, it is because I, I'm preaching to you, I'm telling you about all these benefits, but for this reason, which is, we're given in verse 12, we're given in verse 12, he's, uh, sorry, verse 13, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of, of your salvation, and, uh, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee. He, he's saying, I'm not just spouting off theology, I'm explaining you, I'm describing you, this is your life. And so for this reason, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that I didn't just list a bunch of disconnected theological benefits, but I'm I'm actually describing the church. I'm describing you Ephesians. Your your faces are in my mind, and I get to, 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 to consider not just that there are these benefits in Christ, but that you are sharing in them. That's the, that's the good news for a soul winner, gospel preacher, church planter, missionary apostle like Paul. That's the joy of his life. That's what he says in Philippians, 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians. He'll use phrases like, you're God's letter to me of approval, that he approves of my ministry. You are, you are the joy and crown that gets placed on my head and the purchase of my sufferings in life. This is, this is the height and joy of a pastor's life when people are believing in the gospel through his, through his preaching. And so he's saying here in verse 15, um, I'm excited, I'm thankful, I'm praising God because you're partakers. But, but we have to say, on what grounds is Paul saying that they're partakers? How is Paul, or what has Paul heard that gives him the assurance that the Ephesians are actually partakers of the blessings that Jesus brings? And the two, twofold answer is that he gives us in verse 15 is that they have become those who, 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 who receive and walk in the gospel and the law. They are people who are embodying the law and the gospel. Let let me explain. He starts out by saying, I'm thankful that all of this is true for you. Here's the benefits in Christ. Therefore, I'm praising God for you because, what's my ground for being sure that you're saved? 
Well, firstly, you have faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints. You have faith towards Jesus and you have love towards all the saints. Now, now there is a, we can get into all sorts of trouble. If we, if I was to ask you, like I've asked pastors and church folk and seminary students, and I've asked them, hey, what's the gospel? Or how do you summarize the teaching of the Bible about how to be saved? And they'll say something like, well, you love God and you love people. Now, if you don't know why that is a disastrous error, sending many to hell, you've got a problem. Love God, love people is not the gospel. Love God, love people is a summary of the law, Jesus and James tell us and Paul tell us. Love God, love people is not good news from God saying, all you need to do is be loving because you'll fail and go to hell for that. The gospel is that you can't love, you can't obey the law, you're not good, you're not holy, you're not righteous, you're evil, but in Jesus Christ there is salvation and atonement and forgiveness and you receive it on the basis of faith alone. That's all you need. Believe and it's yours. So you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. However, we know that law and gospel are not antithetical. For our salvation, they're antithetical. Law condemns, gospel saves. Works condemn, faith saves. However, in terms of the Christian life, anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ will also embody the fulfilling of the law towards one another, which is in self-sacrificial love. So that's why when he hears that the Ephesian church and the other campus ministries, satellite churches, and the churches planted out of them, and all the churches along the road that this letter is going to go to, when he hears that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows they're saved. When he knows that they are showing love towards all the saints, he has enough pastoral reason to say, you should be confident you're saved. This is good news. You're living in the benefits of the gospel because you are living by faith and walking in love. That's why he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks to you, uh, for you, to God, for you. But then he starts telling us what he's praying for them. Now that already should be a little bit jarring to us. If you've got a letter from the Apostle Paul saying, you have the right kind of faith and you're walking in love. I'm impressed and I'm thankful. You, you would expect that you've pretty much made it. That's, a, that, that's all you want in life is to hear the, the daddy issues or not. All you want to hear is Paul say, I'm impressed with you, pal. Then you can die happy, right? In the Christian life, right? That, that's what you think. But Paul doesn't think so. Because you're doing great. So I'm going to pray even more that you learn more, you do more, you understand more, you, you, you comprehend more, and that's, that's what the rest of tonight's passage is. Though, Calvin, Calvin says, though they have these things to be praising God for, the most dangerous thing in the world is being satisfied with how spiritual you are. It's the most dangerous thing in the world. You will see yourself falling off a cliff in short order if you sit back in your life and go, I'm spiritual enough, I'm more spiritual than him, more spiritual than her, I see love and faith in my life. There we'll put the full stop. No, we must always be pressing on to more. And Paul thinks so too. So in verse 17, he says, this, this first portion is about the knowledge that he wants us to have. Verse 17, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Just on the back of the last couple of weeks, do you already see the Trinitarian themes coming through this one verse? May the Father of Jesus Christ give you the spirit to have wisdom. It's in every, every portion of Scripture if you're willing to see it. Here he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory would give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, full, full stop, we'll get to what we're supposed to know soon, but that you may know. To Paul, head knowledge is, is not enough in the Christian life. It's not enough that you have head knowledge, and yet head knowledge and heart knowledge, deeply held theological truths, is absolutely indispensable. You cannot do or obey what you do not understand. There's, there's so many, may, maybe your background, maybe you now, maybe the way you relate to God is like this. Maybe it's just a bunch of churches that are out there. You sort of go and you sit in your pew and what you hear is, go, go, do, do, obey, strive, commit, be passionate, serve, do, do, do. And it's, it's kind of like a, 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 when I was a teenager, we, we were heading on a road trip to Victoria. I repented. It's okay. Not going back there. And we, and my mum and dad, this will show my age a little bit, we got this brand new grand spanking thing called a TomTom, a navigation box that was about 200 bucks. And what it did was it took the paper Refidex and it squished it all into this one chunky little, little, little screen thing and it just told you where to go. Like you didn't need your wife to yell at you, you didn't need the husband to backseat drive. It just, it, no Refidexes. If you don't even know what a Refidex is, Praise the Lord. The world's getting better. But this nav man would just tell you where to go. And there's this, this extra little app, which my dad thought was quirky, and he downloaded. You could actually download the entirety of the, of the uh, software to speak to you in the voice of John Cleese. <laughs> if you don't know who that is, you're too young, and you should go and watch Monty Python or something. Your pastor approved it. It'll be good for your soul. John Cleese's voice would just tell you where to go, which was cool because he's a comedian and he's English. But the thing about John Cleese was if you took the wrong turn, he would just start abusing you. You, you, you fool, well, what are you listening to? Well, why? well, that's not what I said to you. You know, he just starts abusing you and telling you, do a U-turn right now, wherever you can. And, and it was funny watching my mom drive once with that in. She didn't know my dad had downloaded this thing. And so she's turned it on and, you know, oh, what do I do? Make it stop, Thomas, what happened? And so I'm reaching forward from the backseat, trying to fix it up. I don't know what to do. And, uh, and, and she takes this wrong turn and it just starts abusing her. And it did the exact opposite to what a nav man is supposed to do. It's, it, it shut down her faculties, it stressed her out, and she didn't know what to do, where to turn, or where to drive, right? And, and that's what so much of preaching is like today. A lot of people get up, and instead of showing you the way, they, they sort of, it's like they're, they're coming and standing in front of you, and you're in a car with no fuel, and you have no directions, and they're just telling you, go, do, do, go, drive, arrive, go to destination, go, 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 and, and all it really forces you to do is shut down. Because what they're failing to give to you is the map, and what they're failing to give to you is the very fuel that will enable you to move along the way. And those things, that the map and the fuel is a Christian understanding of the gospel and the law. The gospel and the law, if you don't understand them, if you have no functional knowledge of them, you can't go anywhere. You can't live out what, as Kellogg said from the great Nutrigrain, you can't get out what you don't put in. That's simply how it is. And so Paul knows that. He's not going to start telling them what to do and how to live and, or, or even just striving and telling them do, 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 do better, do more, do, do more frequently. He actually starts by saying, I'm, I'm going to pray for you, starting with your understanding of the gospel, which I just explained to you from verse 3 to 14. Now I'm praying for you that you have a knowledge of it, that you get it to your guts. And we need to distinguish between well, he says here in verse 17, he says, that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That Greek is referring, the him is Jesus Christ. 
He is not saying, you know the gospel, and you, you got justification down pat, and you understand adoption, you know Jesus, but you need the Spirit to come and to give you something even deeper and better and greater, something other than Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a world of difference to talk about getting deeper into the things of Jesus and then talking about the things that are more deep than Jesus. You hear the phrase more deep than Jesus, more important than Jesus, other things other than Jesus. You just run. You don't come to a pulpit that feeds you on stuff. Maybe, maybe a couple of uh, bread and butter Jesus Christ quips here and there, mostly for the new Christians. But, you know, if you want to grow in maturity, you, you need to know all about X, Y, Z and all these things that take you beyond Christ. No, we're not about that at all. It, what, what, what we're doing is not, is not learning a bit about Jesus for salvation and up our camp and on we move, but rather camping out for good, taking the drill, taking the shovel and, and mining deeper and deeper and deeper into the glories of Jesus. A Christian expanding, maturing, developing, additioning, uh, growing knowledge of God is nothing more than a deepening understanding of the gospel and its implications. That is what is spiritual knowledge. We see here that this spirit of knowledge that we undertake, this, this, sorry, this knowledge that we receive actually comes from a particular person and a particular person in, in the Trinity. Like he says here, may the Father of Jesus give to you the spirit of wisdom and insight. He said here, may, you, may the eyes of your hearts be, be enlightened by him. Now, now, in their day, the heart was not really the seat of the feeling, okay, like it is today. I say heart, you think, you think your feelings, your affections, but for them, the heart was really like the, the thought patterns, the mindset. For them, the bowels was the feeling, right? You, like we might even say, oh, he, he turns me to my gut, or I had a gut feeling. That's the kind of idea. So I don't want to imagine what they would have done for like Valentine's Day without a little heart, a little, a little intestine Thing. I don't know what, you, what shaped you're giving chocolates to your love if Valentine's was around bowel-shaped. But anyway, we're going to move on. Uh, uh, that, that's them. They say heart, they mean mind. They say bowel, they mean hearts, right? Uh, the, 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 the psalmist will call God, will call God the, the, the one rich in, with bowels of compassion. So heart is not feelings, heart is mind. He's asking the eyes of your mind be expanded, be, be enlightened, be, be clarified and crystallized so that you can see what it is that it is to behold, but it's coming particularly from the Spirit. It's this, one of the most important and often overlooked tasks and jobs and roles of the Holy Spirit in this life after he's brought us to salvation is to then give to our minds a renewing understanding of the Scriptures. We, we need to distinguish between the Revelation, capital R, Revelation that God gives, gave to the apostles so that they could write down new mysteries from God and go into the scripture, okay? That's the scripture, capital R, Revelation. That is now finished, the, the canon of scripture. What God needs all people in all time to understand is authoritative. That is now finished at the death of the last apostle. However, the, the revelation that Paul is speaking of here is, is, is what we can say the illumination, he doesn't, he doesn't add more words through you, you the apostle, you the, you the mini prophet in your prayer closet. He's given you second and third James and fourth Timothy and everything like that to add to the Bible. Not what's going on. Rather, what he's giving to you is, is a mind of, of light so that, it, so, that, so that the words that are there are cast into a new light and further be able to be understood. That's what the Spirit does for us. Gives us an understanding of Jesus 
in the gospel, through the word. That's how we gain a greater and greater sense of knowledge. Now, moving on, he goes from there to say, I'm praying for you, and I know you feel like you need it, a greater expanding ability to understand the gospel that I've just explained to you. But then look at the end of uh, uh, verse 18. It says, that you may know, halfway through, but what is it that we should know? And he particularly focuses in on our hope. That you may know what it... uh, uh, What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is the the content that he wants you to understand is what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean that having placed my faith in Jesus and I've now become a son of God legally and therefore I have a right to all the benefits of being a son of God? Anything Jesus earned, it's in my account too. What does that mean? What are you actually waiting for? What, what, is, what is waiting for us in, the, in the, the great blessings of the gospel in our inheritance? Now, now he says here the hope. What is the hope? In New Testament speaking, the hope that we have is not, is not cross fingers, wishful thinking, buckling down and hoping. You know, I really hope that it's good weather on my wedding day. I, I really hope that, uh, that he's nice to me tomorrow instead of me. You know, it's, it's not a hope like that. Hope, biblically, is a certain knowledge about something that just hasn't happened yet. Do you have that hope? Are you a Christian who's just wishful thinking? Hope I get a, get there. Hope I make it to the end. I hope God gives me his spirit. I hope, like if you were asked, are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to answer back? And I hope he lets me in. I hope I'm having a good day that day. I, I, I hope I go to heaven instead of hell. Or do you have a biblical hope? One that is grounded in the absolute infallible assurance of Jesus' blood shed for you. Jesus' death in your place. Jesus' resurrection and sitting at God's right hand where you have an intercessor and mediator forever. Is that the grounds of your hope? But the hope also is, is an event. In, in, on one hand, our hope is certainty. In another sense, our hope is a person. It's Jesus and everything that's in him. In New Testament speech, our hope is also an event, one that we were speaking about last week. It, it's, it's really uh, uh, the fullness of our inheritance, and so we come back to the theme of union with Christ. Because I'm made one with Christ, I get his full inheritance, that's the hope that I'm waiting for, but what is that hope? What is the fullness of the inheritance? And it's, it's what he spoke to us about in verse, in verse 14, where he said that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's, uh, the inheritance was hinted at in verse 10, when he was speaking about God's purpose in Christ as a plan to fulfill, sorry, to, uh, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. It's what we were speaking about last week, being that moment, that day of our glorification. That day when Jesus comes back bodily, we're resurrected into into perfect bodies that can never sin again, cannot die, cannot fade, cannot get sick, and, and, and God recreates the entire universe so that we're inhabiting the new world. That's the fullness of our inheritance that we are momentarily waiting for, but because of the Spirit, we are sure, we have a certain hope that we will be stepping into it one day. And Paul expects that the knowledge you have of where you're going will change how you're living now. 
This old story, I think I, the first time I read it was Spurgeon. He tells a story about the guy who was sort of middle-class dude, but he, he had an uncle die who left to him an enormous estate, a wonderful building, a, a, a beautiful inheritance, all these funds down in London, and it was just his job to come down and receive it all. And, and so he basically used all of the money that he could to just buy the ticket and, and, and get rid of all of his goods and, and get his family down there. And as he's walking towards the train station it, with the last of his money, in his pockets, uh, a, a guy jumps out and holds out a knife and holds him at, at knife point and robs him. And he says, give me everything you got right now. And, and he just starts emptying his pockets and flicking coins on the ground and chucking the guy his gold and throwing over his, his pound notes, uh, chipper as can be. And the, the guy grabs it all up, runs away, and somebody standing by says, what? Why were you so happy to just give away all of it? Why the smile? And the guy says, oh, when you know you have a glorious inheritance to come, it matters not what is in your pockets. And that's the Christian life. You're walking from your house, which you don't live in anymore, towards the train station of death to immediately arrive on heaven's shores. And all you got in your pocket. Now, some of us will live with more gold in our pockets than others. Some of us will make it to the train station packed pockets. Some of us will make it a little further along before others, before we're killed, we die, we suffer, we have diseases, whatever. Some of us as Christians will have more proverbial gold in our pockets than others. But no one of us has a better inheritance waiting. Every one of us has the fullness of glory that the Father of glory will give to us on that day. That is what we're waiting for. There's no way to comprehend that and it not change how you live. Not change the kinds of things you live for, the kinds of things you pine after, the kinds of things you complain about, the kind of things you pray for, the kind of things you give to other people, the kind of ways you use your energy. There's no way to comprehend the inheritance you've got and live the same. So Paul is saying in a very practical way here, I'm praying that you would get to your guts what is coming for you. And then he talks about power. So he said, I'm praying that you, you increase in your knowledge. And he says, I'm praying that your knowledge would be particularly about the inheritance that you have. And thirdly, he's saying, I'm praying that your knowledge would also be about the power that is yours currently. So look at verse 19. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That means that whatever we're about to explain, and it's enormous, he's talking about the good news. He's talking about the, 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 the power that is 100% accessible by every Christian, no matter how long you've been a Christian or short time, no matter how old you are or young you are, weak you are, strong you are, mature you are, immature you are, knowledgeable or unknowledgeable, if you are a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus, this is true of you. God is speaking through Paul here about the power that you have. Now, there's a lot of, a lot of churches out there, a lot of preachers out there who want to talk about the power. And I can see some of you ultra-reformed guys just, just cringing a little bit as I talk about the power. Like you've read, the, you've listened to the old radio programs, The Hour of Power, and you've seen what some people preach about, the spiritual power that we can walk in. And I'm just giving you PTSD, even using that P word. But there is power that is on, on, on offer in the gospel of Jesus. So we must all expect to walk in. The power is not... Is not out there available if you fast enough. It's not out there available if you give enough and unlock the tithing mystery key, whatever. The, tither, the power is not out there if somebody touches and anoints you enough or if you pray enough. In fact, Paul is not saying here, if you strive enough, you'll get to the, the unlimited power. He's actually saying, 
You just need to come to a realization that you're already sitting on top of the nuclear plant. That's what he's saying. And before we get to what that power is, let's just look at the words that he uses to describe this power, because he literally exhausts his vocabulary to talk about how powerful this power is. So look at verse 19. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness? Immeasurable, meaning can't count that high. Greatness is greatness. And then he uses all these different Greek words. One is like working, one is power, one is strength, one is might. He just piles them on top of each other. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So, so this is just Paul stacking the vocabulary in order to make the amazing point to Christians who have a tendency, let's be honest, to feel hopeless and to feel powerless and to make an excuse for our sin and to feel sorry for ourselves. Paul's just telling us, you are sitting on an infinite goldmine of power. Now, we're going to ask a little bit later, what is this power for? How should we utilize it? But first of all, we actually need to sort of put on our skeptic's brain or, or, or just be honest with each other. This is high talk from a guy who's strapped up to a Roman jail cell or rather a, a Roman jailer in a house in Rome. Like, this, is, this is high talk for a guy who says he's, he's endued with all this power and he's sailed the known world to get imprisoned. Like, like, and then he's writing to the Ephesians who are slaves or abused wives or persecuted people or uh, very, very poor uh, or just losers because they're Christians in their society. And then for all of church history, it's going to be the same kind of people picking up this letter and reading it. Uh, and a little bit of offense, but, but not heaps of offense. You guys and me, we then pick it up and we read in our little, just our lives, just in our looking like we look, living like we live. We then pick it up and go, oh, there's an infinite amount of power that I currently have and walk in right now. It doesn't seem very believable. Excuse me, Paul, is there any kind of clue you can point to to show me that this is legitimate power and not just the ravings of a madman in a cell? And Paul goes, yeah, sure. You want me to point to something that puts on display the kind of power I'm talking about? Look at verse 21. Sorry, uh, uh, verse 20. This power, this is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that can be named in this age and also in the age to come. And he put him as head over all things. And then he gave him to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the sign of power. Do you see what, what Paul is saying? He goes, I want you to imagine the deadest death that was ever died. Imagine a corpse so dead. It didn't just transpire. Uh, think of a corpse that did not just die, but in fact was, was murdered and, and held under the weight of, of death. In fact, don't just think of somebody murdered by mere man. Think of somebody that God sought to put to death with an infinite, absolute wrath and anger. Think, try and think of a body, what a body must look like, and, and sort of in the spiritual realm, how bound a body must be in death if God had said it was my pleasure and my will to destroy that death, destroy that body, uh, bring about that death with all of my power. Imagine, imagine how dead something must be. Like, you probably didn't realize that there was degrees of death. I'm telling you there is. Right? There's the death that you and I die. There's Lazarus who, who, who transpires. 
And then there's the death of Jesus, who is pursued into his death by the hottest and, 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 and most powerful wrath that can ever be imagined. The infinite strength of God was utilized and mustered in order to make Christ suffer and put him to death. An infinite life perishing into the grave. Sealed, dead, life not allowed to come back because he died for the sins of many. There is a multitude of lives lived, billions and billions of them, and each one filled with sin to the brim and every sin in every life deserving for itself an eternity in hell. All of those were lumped up, put on Christ, and that was the death he died. And yet there's never been a body more exalted than the physical body of Jesus, therein lying under the hold of death. That body God gave life back to. And he didn't just breathe a gentle breath back in. He put, he put back in the divine life of the Son of God in flesh, and then he zipped him up to sit him at the highest seat of the universe that can be imagined. There, there is no such thing as a transformation more mind-blowing than the resurrection of Jesus. Or, or what Peter calls the mystery of the Old Testament prophets about the sufferings and exaltations of the Christ. There's, there's no axiom, there's no paradox, there's no truth more startling than the, than the amazing transformation that happened between Jesus' death and then his exaltation to the right hand of God in power. And Paul saying... That's the same power at work in you. It's the same spirit that rose him that is now at work in you. Well, we're going to see this next week in, in chapter 2 when he says, this is the spirit that brought you to salvation. That's proof number two of God's power. Then he's going to go into uh, a little further into chapter 2 and talk about the, the church, which is the, the temple of God, Jew and Gentile, unified. That's proof number three that the spirit's at work. But here, first, as Christians all throughout history are saying, Paul, that's an amazing amount of power. Where can I look to see some proof of it? Because it's not in my life. I'm not going to look at my brother's life and see, see this infinite power put on display. I'm not going to look at the church's life. I'm not going to be able to look at anything in my own experience to know for certain that there is an infinite power on display. And Paul says, no, but you can look to the right hand of God where you have a high priest interceding for you, where you have a mediator representing you, where you have a king ruling for you who was once dead in the grave. That's the proof of power. And that's the kind of power. Look next at the, the, the position of that power, or, or really the extent of the authority that Jesus received after his resurrection. Look at verse 21. <laughs> Sorry, verse 20 again. He was raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is referencing Psalm 110 verse 1. The, the favorite verse that the New Testament writers love to quote is Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus exalted, becoming the king over all things. And therefore, he says, in fulfillment of that, he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Now, name is here tied to authority. You flash certain person's name, right? You show somebody's important last name on your contract or on your badge. People go, oh, wow, that's, a, that's an important name. And here he's saying there's no name higher than Jesus. Jesus has that highest name. He said, not only the names of this age, but also the ages to come, just in case you thought there was an exception, there's none. This is the scope or the authority of his power, an absolute authority raised up to the, to the, to the, to the, the right hand of God, the highest authority that can be imagined. That was given to Christ on the merits of his life, death, and resurrection and exaltation. 
That's the power. But then we see the place. If this guy's a king, this, this man, this Jesus, this God, this Christ, if he died okay, for, to, to inherit a kingdom and he atoned for a kingdom people, that's all who believe, kingdoms have a place. Kingdoms have a scope. I mean, you're out of the kingdom or you're in the kingdom. So, so what's the geography? What's the, the, the scope of Christ's kingdom? And the answer is given here by Paul in the next verse where he, he kind of references Psalm 8, verse 6. So he referenced Psalm 110, verse 1, to say this is how much power and authority he has, all of it. And then he references Psalm 8, verse 6, to say, and where does he have that power? Where can he exercise that authority? And what is a part of his kingdom? And the answer is literally every square inch of creation. Psalm 8, verse 6 is, is, a, is a, a, a psalm to God saying, wow, look at creation. Look at the glories that you've made. But your greatest mercy was that you made mankind just a notch under the angels to rule over it all. That was Adam. He was king of the planet, head of creation. That's what Adam had. All of it belonged to him. And do you see what Paul is doing by applying that to Jesus? He's saying, this is still, this has been redeemed. The gospel is not, we get zipped out of here one day, merely. The, the gospel is not, is not simply that your souls will be saved and he's jettisoning the, the physical world out of the, 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 the rubbish heap. He, he's not saying that. He's saying that everything that was given to Adam has now been earned and belongs to Jesus Christ. So in other words, though we speak all this time of Jesus went up and sat down, he went and took a throne, he, he, he ascended off the earth, remember, in his ascension, we can get in a sense of thinking that ascension is him going to wait. Or an ascension is when he left the earth. Don't think of the ascension as Jesus leaving the earth. That would be like thinking that when you're sitting on your little economy seat on a plane and you see the pilot walk past you, morning ma'am, morning sir, we're going to have a great flight today, and then you go and see him go behind a door and shut it, and you think, well, who's going to fly the plane? The pilot's gone. He's locked himself away over there. Now we have no one to fly, right? That would be foolish, just like thinking that the ascension was Jesus leaving the earth is foolish. Because he just went and took the seat that he needed to sit on to control and influence everything you see. Jesus, in his ascension, didn't leave the earth. He sat down on the seat that he can control the earth and all history from. He did not give up on the earth. He didn't escape it. He didn't leave it. He now rules over it. That's, that's what he says here in, in verse 22. He put all things under his feet like he first put it under Adam's feet. He put it under his feet and then gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, God didn't say, here's the fallen world, here's the elect, here's, here's the sliver of creation we'll call the church. Jesus, you rule over that. Instead, he said, I'm going to make you ruler of everything and then give you as head of all things to the church. That's an enormous difference. Jesus is head over the whole universe, ruling and reigning it how he wishes, and he's our head. Have you ever maybe been told as a teenager in love, maybe been told as a Christian seeking to pray for revival or something, maybe you've been told by an older, wiser person, get your head out of the clouds. In a very real and true sense, 
Christians have our head in the clouds. And it needs to stay there because our head is Jesus Christ. And he's above this earth. He's above the world. He's up in heaven. But his body is here on earth. He is king over everything, given to the church as a gift, as the authoritative king to then be our head. So that from the king over all things flows all of our blessings. From the king over all things flows our authority. That is the kind of power that he is speaking of here. So, so the amount of power, Psalm 110, all of it, all authority. Where is he exercising that? Psalm 8 verse 6, over everything because it's all under his feet. And how are we to apply this? How are we to understand? Well, we just bring it straight back to our ordinary Christian lives. Do I have the power to overcome sin that is plaguing me? Absolutely yes. Do I have the power to, to, to push through the difficult family situation and the in-laws or somebody I'm disagreeing with? Absolutely yes, you have the power to push on to a resolution in that. Do you have the power to, to put up with the persecution or the, the, the mistreatment that you're receiving maybe in your family, probably in your work? Is Jesus on the throne and was he once dead? Absolutely you have the power for that. Do I have the power to continue on in, in ministry and service when, when the world seems against the church, but, but the gospel is important, I'm striving to make it known. Do I have the power to persevere in that? You bet you do. Jesus is on the throne and he fills us who fills all things, verse 23 tells us. Do I really have the power to persevere until the end, and not fall away from the faith. Absolutely you do. The immeasurable, uncountable, innumerable power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is invested for your sake. The king of the universe is your head. The king of the universe is on your side. What a glorious thing. Let's pray. Father God, there is so much good news in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray at this moment that those who can, cannot be described by verse 15, those who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would tonight come to an understanding that the most important thing, the most relevant thing that can ever be considered is whether or not we are saved by Jesus, whether or not we are one with him, whether or not the Spirit has given to us adoption, whether or not we've escaped our sin and escaped our condemnation and been ushered into the, the blessings of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. God, would you remove the distractions and remove the, the things that have ordinarily and previously kept these people from placing their faith in you? And tonight, would you give to them faith to believe? Whether they're a religious type or whether they're a, they're, they're a rebel in their hearts, God, would you show them both that they don't, have, they don't have nothing to offer you? Both of them are, are just full of sin. No matter what kind of person we're like, where on the spectrum we are, we are all sinners before you. And only by Jesus' death on the cross which you rose him back from, which you seated him at the throne of. Father God, only that salvation in Jesus is able to save us. Please give your free grace. Convince them, God, that you want to be their father, the father of glory to them, who gives to them the spirit of understanding, who, who grows them and, and brings them to you one day bodily. Father God, would they understand the grace and the free gift and the love that is on offer in Jesus Christ today. And, and for those of us who have, who have placed our faith in Christ in the past, would you enable these things to become true of us? A deepening, broadening, expanding knowledge of the gospel of Jesus. A, a clearer understanding of our riches and the inheritance that awaits us. 
and and an understanding of the power that is already ours in Jesus Christ. And if ever, Lord God, we attempted to be hopeless, tempted to forget a proof of that power, would you point our eyes to Jesus Christ, exalted and ruling with all power and all authority. Father God, we pray all these things in his name, the name that is above every name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.